Hey friends, M. Faring here. I'm so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope you are able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hello and welcome, my Bible study friends. I'm so excited you're opening the pages of God's Word together with me today. Let's get right back to it, shall we? This dramatic storyline is sure increasing in intensity, am I right? Oh, goodness. So in the last episode, we saw the first seven plagues God brought on the Egyptians because Pharaoh wouldn't listen to Moses and set the Israelite slaves free. God knows that Pharaoh will not let Israel go free, but here he is, once again, offering Pharaoh yet more chances to repent. Oh, the heartache, destruction, and collateral damage that we're seeing caused by Pharaoh's hardened heart. And honestly, even more damage to come today, but more on that in a bit. I know we talked quite a bit at length, actually, in the last episode about Pharaoh's hardened heart, but I came across this explanation from Terry Lee Cobble of the Bible Recap, and I just had to share it with you. It begins, The first few sentences we are going to soon read today say, I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. This is a weighty paragraph. It almost sounds like part of God's plan was to harden Pharaoh's heart against his plan. And the reason was that this process would help Israel really know and trust him as God. God uses the wicked as a tool to advance his plan and bless his children he's adopted into his family. We can't cut sentences like this out of the Bible. We have to wrestle with them and see what they mean and how they fit into the context of everything else in Scripture. I'm not going to tie it up with a pretty bow and make it look simple. It's hard. It's mysterious. And it's okay to not have answers about it yet, or maybe ever. In our previous readings, we've encountered several places where God hardened Pharaoh's heart, a few where it just says his heart was hardened, and a few that attribute the hardening to Pharaoh himself. But interestingly, Pharaoh's hardening of his own heart is almost always followed with the statement, as the Lord had said. It can feel threatening to recognize that God is bigger than your own heart, that he can shape it for his own purposes. If that's you and you're feeling that way right now, I would encourage you to not let fear drive that thought. The enemy of your soul wants you to view God's power through the lens that pushes you away from Him instead of drawing you in. So instead, try to stop and acknowledge how comforting it is that we serve a God who is that powerful. For instance, think about those you know and love who are furthest from God. People you've prayed for and cried for. People who have told you that they never want to hear you say another word about God again. God can soften their hearts and turn them on their heels, just like He did with the Apostle Paul, who wasn't just not seeking Him, but was actively at war against God and his people, much like Pharaoh. For God to be sovereign over sins and hearts means no one is beyond his reach and is never too late. And that's the greatest comfort I can imagine. Moving on, here are just a few more study notes I came across in my New Living Translation Life Application Study Bible, this time for chapter 11, verses 9 and 10. You may wonder how Pharaoh could be so foolish as to see God's miraculous power and still not listen to Moses. But Pharaoh had his mind made up long before the plagues began. He couldn't believe that someone was greater than he. This stubborn unbelief led to a heart so hard that even a major catastrophe couldn't soften it. Finally, it took the greatest of all the calamities, the loss of his son, to force him to recognize God's authority. But even then he wanted God to leave, not to rule his country. We must not wait for great calamities to drive us to God, but we must open our hearts and minds to his directions now. 
And then 11.10, did God really harden Pharaoh's heart and force him to do wrong? Before the ten plagues begin, Moses and Aaron announced what God would do if Pharaoh didn't let the people go. But their message only made Pharaoh stubborn. He was hardening his own heart. In doing so, he defied both God and his messengers. Through the first nine plagues, Pharaoh's heart grew even more stubborn. After the ninth plague, God passed judgment. Sooner or later, evil people will be punished for their sins. When it became evident that Pharaoh wouldn't change, God confirms Pharaoh's prideful decision and set the painful consequences of his action in motion. God didn't force Pharaoh to reject him. Rather, he gave him every opportunity to change his mind. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people. Okay, with all that said about Pharaoh's ever-hardening heart, let's lean into the rest of the plagues with our reading in Exodus chapter 10 from the New Living Translation. It begins, A plague of locusts. Then the Lord said to Moses, Return to Pharaoh and make your demands again. I have made him and his officials stubborn, so I can display my miraculous signs among them. I've also done it so that you can tell your children and grandchildren about how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and about the signs I displayed among them, and so you will know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to submit to me? Let my people go so that they can worship me. If you refuse, watch out, for tomorrow I will bring a swarm of locusts on your country. They will cover the land so that you won't be able to see the ground. They will devour what little is left of your crops after the hailstorm, including all the trees growing in the fields. They will overrun your palaces and the homes of your officials and all the houses in Egypt. Never in the history of Egypt have your ancestors seen a plague like this one. And with that, Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Pharaoh's officials now came to Pharaoh and appealed to him, How long will you let this man hold us hostage? Let the men go to worship the Lord their God. Don't you realize that Egypt lies in ruins? So Moses and Aram were brought back to Pharaoh. All right, he told them, go and worship the Lord your God. But who exactly will be going with you? Moses replied, We will all go, young and old, our sons and daughters, and our flocks and herds. We must all join together in celebrating a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh retorted, The Lord will certainly need to be with you if I let you take your little ones. I can see through your evil plan. Never. Only the men may go and worship the Lord since that is what you requested. And Pharaoh threw them out of the palace. Then the Lord said to Moses, Raise your hand over the land of Egypt to bring on the locusts. Let them cover the land and devour every plant that survived the hailstorm. So Moses raised his staff over Egypt, and the Lord caused an east wind to blow over the land all that day and through the night. When morning arrived, the east wind had brought the locusts, and the locusts swarmed over the whole land of Egypt, settling in dense swarms from one end of the country to the other. It was the worst locust plague in Egyptian history, and there has never been another one like it. For the locusts covered the whole country and darkened the land. They devoured every plant in the fields and all the fruit on the trees that had survived the hailstorm. Not a single leaf was left on the trees and plants throughout the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron. I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you, he confessed. Forgive my sin, just this once, and plead with the Lord your God to take away this death from me. So Moses left Pharaoh's court and pleaded with the Lord. The Lord responded by shifting the winds, and the strong west wind blew the locusts into the Red Sea. Not a single locust remained in all of the land of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart again, so he refused to let the people go. A Plague of Darkness Then the Lord said to Moses, Lift your hand toward heaven, and the land of Egypt will be covered with darkness so thick you can feel it. So Moses lifted his hand to the sky, and a deep darkness covered the entire land of Egypt for three days. During all that time, the people could not even see each other, and no one moved. But there was light as usual where the people of Israel lived. 
Finally, Pharaoh called for Moses. Go and worship the Lord, he said, but leave your flocks and herds here. You may even take your little ones with you. No, Moses said. You must provide us with the animals for sacrifices and burnt offerings to the Lord our God. All our livestock must go with us too. Not a hoof can be left behind. We must choose our sacrifices for the Lord our God from among these animals, and we won't know how we are to worship the Lord until we get there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart once more, and he would not let them go. Get out of here, Pharaoh shouted at Moses. I'm warning you, never come back to see me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Very well, Moses replied. I will never see your face again. Well, how about we just start with chapter 10, verse 2, shall we? In that verse, we hear God instructing Moses to be sure to tell his children and grandchildren of the things he has done in Egypt. The Amplified Translation of the Bible says it this way, so that you may know without a doubt and recognize clearly that I am the Lord. Let's just camp there for a moment to consider the amazing stories Moses had to tell. Amazing, just amazing stories for sure. Moses lived out one of the greatest dramas in all of scriptures. He witnessed events few people would ever see. Wouldn't it have been such fun, and let's be real, maybe sometimes terrifying even, to sit at Moses' knee as one of his grandchildren to hear the intensity, excitement, and passion with which Moses would tell of these moments. I can only imagine how exciting and awe-inspiring those stories would have been coming directly from someone who was there. The details, the emotions, all the things. Moses' history with God, his faithful presence in the past, and a reminder that God is still the same today. Sometimes we ourselves can have short memories. We experience God's power and provision, yet we forget all of it when faced with another difficult or uncertain circumstance. Can I just interject here for all of us this reminder? It is important to tell the children in our lives about God's work in our past and to help them see what He is doing right now as well. Like Moses, our stories will form the foundation of our children's belief in God and will serve as a reminder to us that our God is Lord. Moving on, in chapter 10 we saw the frustration mounting with Pharaoh's servants, and Pharaoh starts to weaken in his resolve. But instead of obeying, he asks for a compromise, and God doesn't really go for that. So the locusts and the darkness come, but still no repentance. The New Living Translation Life Application Study Note for chapter 10, verse 22, has this to say about all those Egyptian gods versus our God. As each gloomy plague descended upon the land, the Egyptian people realized how powerless their own gods were to stop it. Happy, the god of the Nile River, could not prevent the waters from turning to blood. Hathor, the crafty cow goddess, was helpless as Egyptian livestock died in droves. Amon-Re, the sun god and chief of the Egyptian gods, could not stop an eerie darkness from covering the land for three full days. The Egyptian gods were one, not personal, centering around images like sun or the river. Two, numerous. Three, not exclusive, any and all could be worshipped. By contrast, the god of the Hebrews was one, a living, personal being. Two, the only true god. And three, the only god who should be worshipped. God was proving to both the Hebrews and the Egyptians that He alone is a living and all-powerful God. Moving on to First Five's How Do I Get Through This Study, Day 15 reads, The ninth plague brought darkness over the land of Egypt. According to Exodus chapter 10, verse 23, two things happened as a result of this darkness. One, people could not see each other, and two, no one moved. We also learned that the darkness blanketed Egypt for three days. Of course, we've all been without electricity at one time or another, but consider what would happen in your own life and how you would feel if you went three days without power. I know I would feel disoriented and uncertain, hesitant to move. How about you, my OB tears? 
we're inconvenienced to just a few hours with flashlights on our phones and our hands. I think it's pretty fair to say that as a 21st century people, that most of us don't understand the darkness as it is described here. In modern times, we are accustomed to having manufactured light, so to fully grasp the weight of the plague, it will be helpful to see it through the eyes of ancient Egypt. Douglas Stewart describes their condition. They closed up their cities at night, barred their courtyard gates, and locked their house doors. People abroad in the nighttime were assumed to be criminals and typically, in fact, were. In the story of creation, darkness was the first thing God addressed. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Throughout Scripture, darkness represents chaos and death. Several commentaries I came across had something very similar to say about what we see happening with the plague of darkness. The key god in the Egyptian pantheon of gods is Ra, the sun god. In the Egyptian culture, Pharaoh embodies Ra on earth. Egyptians believe that Ra battles a serpent of darkness every night, and dawn means that he is victorious. So, when the sun didn't rise for three days, the Egyptians would conclude that Ra has been defeated, and Pharaoh, as Ra's representative, was powerless against our god. So good. Okay, friends, before we officially move into the tenth and final plague, let me just interject a few thoughts I came across in my research about the timing of the plagues, and also decreation as shown in the plagues. About that timing. Nobody really knows how many days transpired from the first plague to the last plague. There's lots of talk about that. And if you have seen any of the movies related to the book of Exodus, they seem to portray it as if it was every other day. However, most commentaries believe it was at least 40 days from the first to the last, but possibly it was up to four or five months. Isn't it interesting to consider these plagues going on that long? Because truthfully, I don't know about you, but as I'm reading it, it easily feels like it happens one right after the other. Think about it, friends. That is a long time to be dealing with the effects of any, but especially all, of these catastrophes. Oh, goodness. And in the God of Deliverance study, Jen Wilkin discusses this idea of decreation when she says, You may have noticed that the language repeated over the course of these plagues was similar to the creation account. And God said, and it was so. Another connection is this. Genesis details chaos to order, whereas the plagues in Exodus show decreation where an order becomes chaos. In the waters, on the land, health, light and darkness, life and death. We must remember that both Genesis and Exodus were written by the same author, Moses, so we do see him repeatedly using repetition to help with connection and remembrance of these stories. Jen goes on to explain, What we've seen in this decreation account is the opposite of what we saw in the creation account in Genesis, because whereas in the creation account we had an ordering of the waters and the sky, and the land. In the Exodus plagues, we instead see the disordering of the waters, and the sky, and the land. And whereas the opening line of the creation account in Genesis is let there be light, the closing cycle of the nine plagues is let there be darkness. But not only that, the first thing we see in the creation account in Genesis 1 is a spirit hovering ready to give life. And what will we see in the tenth plague? The spirit will indeed hover, but for another purpose entirely. Oh my! Let's just go there and read about that tenth plague now, shall we? Exodus chapter 11 reads, Death for Egypt's firstborn. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will strike Pharaoh and the land of Egypt with one more blow. After that, Pharaoh will let you leave this country. In fact, he will be so eager to get rid of you that he will force you all to leave. Tell all the Israelite men and women to ask their Egyptian neighbors for articles of silver and gold. Now the Lord had caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the people of Israel. 
And Moses was considered a very great man in the land of Egypt, respected by Pharaoh's officials and the Egyptian people alike. Moses had announced to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, At midnight tonight I will pass through the heart of Egypt. All the firstborn sons will die in every family in Egypt, from the oldest son of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the oldest son of his lowliest servant girl who grinds the flour. Even the firstborn of all the livestock will die. Then a loud wail will rise throughout the land of Egypt, a wail like no one has heard before or will ever hear again. But among the Israelites it will be so peaceful that not even a dog will bark. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. All the officials of Egypt will run to me and fall to the ground before me. Please leave, they will beg. Hurry and take all your followers with you. Only then will I go. Then, burning with anger, Moses left Pharaoh. Now the Lord had told Moses earlier, Pharaoh will not listen to you, but then I will do even more mighty miracles in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed these miracles in Pharaoh's presence, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he wouldn't let the Israelites leave the country. Egypt had endured nine devastating plagues. The land lay in ruins. The Egyptians were in great despair, and economic impoverishment surrounded them from every angle. Yet Pharaoh remained perched on his throne, stubborn as ever. Pride and audacity ranked higher than the needs of his own country. But the final plague would cost Pharaoh greatly. It would bring tremendous grief and loss to every Egyptian family with children. God's long-suffering had endured long enough, and now the heavy weight of judgment would fall. It was time for God to set his children free from the bondage and oppression they had endured for 400 years. The price? The firstborn son of every Egyptian household would be slain, from the palace to the poorest home in the land. As midnight approached, an invisible sword would be drawn, followed by the greatest wailing Egypt had ever heard. Useless false idols would topple to the ground as the Almighty God of Israel would once again make His powerful presence known. In the midst of the chaos, a distinctive line was drawn between the Egyptians and the Israelites. As one nation experienced wrath and consequences, the other received protection and provision in response to their faith in God. Moses modeled faith as he steadily followed each order from the Lord, only having a vague foreknowledge of what lay ahead for him and his fellow Hebrews. I imagine he breathed a huge sigh of relief when the Lord announced the tenth and final plague that would convince Pharaoh to set the Israelites free. The end of their bondage in Egypt was now in sight. God's detailed instructions for how the Israelites should prepare for and celebrate the Passover might seem elaborate and unnecessary, but the Lord began laying the groundwork for Christ's atoning work on the cross, even centuries before his time on earth. We will also soon see that the people of Egypt were wiser than Pharaoh. They started to realize their gods did nothing to protect them. When it was time for the Israelites to flee Egypt, God made sure the Egyptians were generous and looked favorably on the Israelites, despite all the turmoil they had been through. Even Moses was highly esteemed by all the Egyptians and Pharaoh's own officials. God instructed the Israelites to ask their Egyptian neighbors for articles of gold and silver. The Egyptians gave whatever they had, generously sharing their personal wealth. These treasures were like wages for all those years the Israelites served as slaves. God would eventually use the plundered gold and silver to build His holy tabernacle. Exodus 11 and 12 beautifully highlight the faithfulness of God to provide for His people. Amidst the threat of the tenth plague, God promised provision of the following to Moses and the Israelites. Deliverance from Egyptian bondage. Material resources of gold and silver jewelry to take with them. Favor in the sight of the Egyptians and Pharaoh's servants. Protection of their firstborn from the tenth plague, land that had been promised to Abraham and declared to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, Exodus 3.17, and Exodus 12.25. These divine blessings were not only examples of God's provision, 
but also fulfillment of God's promises made to Moses at the burning bush. From the moment of Moses' calling, the Lord had clearly outlined his plans and his means for accomplishing them. Even apparent challenges and obstacles, such as Pharaoh's refusal to heed Moses' warning and let the Israelites go free, would serve a greater purpose of multiplying his wonders and magnifying his name throughout Egypt. God's provision signified his unmatched power and control. Okay, friends, let's continue on now to read from Exodus 12 in the New Living Translation of the Bible, the first Passover. While the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. Divide the animal according to the size of each family and how much they can eat. The animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat, with no defects. Take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the fourteenth day of this first month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. That same night, they must roast a meat over the fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, legs, and internal organs, must be roasted over the fire. Do not leave any of it until the next morning. Burn whatever is not eaten before morning. These are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed, wear your sandals, and carry your walking stick in your hand. Eat the meal with urgency, for this is the Lord's Passover. On that night I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the day to remember. Each year, from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. This is a law for all time. For seven days the bread you eat must be made without yeast. On the first day of the festival, remove every trace of yeast from your homes. Anyone who eats bread made with yeast during the seven days of the festival will be cut off from the community of Israel. On the first day of the festival, and again on the seventh day, all the people must observe an official day for the holy assembly. No work of any kind may be done on these days except in the preparation of food. Celebrate this festival of unleavened bread, for it will remind you that I brought your forces out of the land of Egypt on this very day. This festival will be a permanent law for you. Celebrate this day from generation to generation. The bread you eat must be made without yeast from the evening of the fourteenth day of the first month until the evening of the twenty-first day of that month. During those seven days, there must be no trace of yeast in your homes. Anyone who eats anything made of yeast during this week will be cut off from the community of Israel. These regulations apply both to the foreigners living among you and to the native-born Israelites. During those days, you must not eat anything made with yeast. Wherever you live, eat only bread made without yeast. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel together and said to them, Go, pick out a lamb or young goat for each of your families, and slaughter the Passover animal. Drain the blood into a basin, then take a bundle of hyssop branches and dip it in the blood. Brush it across the tops and the sides of the door frames of your house, and no one may go through the door until the morning. For the Lord will pass through the land to strike down the Egyptians, but when he sees the blood on the top and the sides of the door frames, the Lord will pass over your home. He will not permit his angel of death to enter your house and strike you down. Remember these instructions are a permanent law that you and your descendants must observe forever. 
When you enter the land the Lord has promised to give you, you will continue to observe the ceremony. Then your children will ask, What does the ceremony mean? And you will reply, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord. For he passed over the homes of the Israelites in Egypt. And though he struck the Egyptians, he spared our families. When Moses had finished speaking, all the people bowed down to the ground and worshipped. So the people of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded through Moses and Aaron. And that night at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn sons in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn son of the prisoner in the dungeon. Even the firstborn of their livestock were killed. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the people in Egypt woke up during the night, and loud wailing was heard throughout the land of Egypt. There was not a single house where someone had not died. Israel's Exodus from Egypt Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron during the night. Get out, he ordered. Leave my people and take the rest of the Israelites with you. Go and worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you said, and be gone. Go, but bless me as you leave. All the Egyptians urged the people of Israel to get out of the land as quickly as possible, for they thought, we will all die. The Israelites took their bread dough before yeast was added. They wrapped their kneading boards in their cloaks and carried them on their shoulders. And the people of Israel did as Moses had instructed. They asked the Egyptians for clothing and articles of silver and gold. The Lord caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites, and they gave the Israelites whatever they asked for. So they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. That night, the people of Israel left Ramses and started for Seketh. There were about 600,000 men, plus all the women and children. A rabble of non-Israelites went with them, along with great flocks and herds of livestock. For bread, they baked flat cakes from the dough without yeast that they had brought from Egypt. It was made without yeast because the people were driven out of Egypt in such a hurry that they had no time to prepare the bread or other food. The people of Israel had lived in Egypt for 430 years. In fact, it was on the last day of the 430th year that all the Lord's forces left the land. On this night, the Lord kept His promise to bring His people out of the land of Egypt. So this night belongs to Him, and it must be commemorated every year by all the Israelites, from generation to generation. Instructions for the Passover Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the instructions for the festival of Passover. No outsiders are allowed to eat the Passover meal, but any slave who has been purchased may eat it if he has been circumcised. Temporary residents and hired servants may not eat it. Each Passover lamb must be eaten in one house. Do not carry any of its meat outside, and do not break any of its bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate this Passover festival. If there are foreigners living among you who want to celebrate the Lord's Passover, let all their males be circumcised. Only then may they celebrate the Passover with you, like any native-born Israelite. But no uncircumcised male may ever eat the Passover meal. This instruction applies to everyone, whether a native-born Israelite, or a foreigner living among you. So all the people of Israel followed all the Lord's commands to Moses and Aaron. On that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt like an army. Okay, friends, listen to these thoughts that I found in a couple commentaries about the Exodus itself. In the middle of the night, 600,000 men and an estimated total of 2 to 3 million people left Egypt on foot. Some other non-Israelites went with them. We later find out even some Egyptians went too. And God tells them to treat them like family, as long as they're circumcised. Exodus chapter 12 verse 38 notes that when the Israelites left Egypt, a mixed multitude also went up with them. This indicates that people of other nationalities accompanied the Hebrews as they departed their land of slavery. This short note reflects the fact that God's plan of salvation has always been international in nature. When God called Abram, Israel's ancestor, he told him, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, Genesis 12.3. Later, 
When Israel first enters Canaan in their conquest of the Promised Land, Rahab defects from the Canaanites and aligns herself with the Israelites in Joshua chapter 2. This theme reappears with people such as Ruth the Moabite and Uriah the Hittite showing faith in God. But it is most evident in the New Testament mandate for the gospel to go out to all the nations. Not only does Jesus commission his followers to go out and make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28:19, but Paul explains that this good news for the nations was actually contained in God's original promise to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And he says this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. Also, you may be a little concerned about the 430 years that it says they spent in Egypt. Like, God was 30 years late? I thought it was only supposed to be 400 years. But there are two possible ways this could shake out. First, God could have just been giving a round number generally, not a down-to-the-minute timeline. Or second, those first 30 years may have included the good times when Joseph had first moved his family there and was still right with the old Pharaoh, before they started enslaving them. So if you're worried that God got it wrong or broke his promise, hopefully that will help you breathe easy. Oh my OOB tears, I hope you're beginning to see this truth played out through each and every one of these plagues by now. God's intent in the Exodus story is certainly to show Egypt who the one true God is, but it is also to write on the hearts of his own people, the Israelites, that he is a faithful and trustworthy deliverer, without whose hope no deliverance was possible. Deliverer. Rescuer. So before we end today, I came across the very thought-provoking perspective of how God might present what we've studied so far throughout the plagues and Passover through the use of two photos to consider as we seek to get to know God better. Truthfully, if you haven't already, my friends, I hope you do take some moments to consider what both Egypt and the area of Goshen look like as these plagues have now come to an end in our readings. And Passover is finished as well. Oh goodness, that's a lot to take in, am I right? Listen in as Nancy Guthrie helps us sort this out in the Lamb of God book in a section titled, Plagues and Passover. If God had a photo album filled with pictures of his family history, what pictures would be in it? What pictures from his personal history would he point to and say, if you really want to know me, you've got to see this? I want to suggest that there are two pictures in particular that God would lift out of the album of human history to put before you so that you could take a long, lingering look. One is a picture of national devastation. This is a wide-angle shot of Egypt in ruins, in the wake of the plagues. This is a picture of judgment. The other picture captures a row of homes in Goshen in which doorway after doorway is framed by brushstrokes of blood. This is a picture of salvation, salvation through judgment. What would make us think that these would be the pictures God would point to? Two reasons. First, when we read the chapters in Exodus where we find the stories surrounding these pictures, again and again we hear God give the same reason for what is being pictured, which is, so that you will know me. Here's just a couple examples. Exodus 7, 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. Exodus 7.17 By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. A little later. Exodus 9.16 For this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Certainly God could have taken Pharaoh out in one swift sweep of his power. But he didn't. Why? because he intended to be known, not just in the homes and hearts of his people Israel, and not just inside the palace of Egypt or even within the borders of Egypt, but throughout all the earth. He intended the story of salvation that he was accomplishing in the lives of his people to be proclaimed throughout the whole earth and throughout all generations. 
there's a much grander plan and a much larger story taking shape here than simply the salvation of one ethnic group at one point in history. God intends for the whole world and every generation to know that He is the Lord who saves through judgment. These pictures will forever tell that story. A second reason we might think that these are the pictures God would point to if we want to know Him is that He ordered Israel's calendar to be oriented around these events and for these events to be commemorated year after year through a feast. In this way, as the years progressed, His people would pull out this album and look at these pictures and would orient not only their calendars, but also their hearts and lives according to these pictures. In observing this feast, they would not merely glance at these pictures and quickly look away, but would enter with all five senses into the story the pictures told. These pictures would tell them about the past, as well as prepare them for the future. So let's look closely at these two important pictures, allowing them to be seared into our understanding, shaping our knowledge of who God is and what He is doing in the world and in our lives. A Picture of Death and Destruction The first picture is a scene of devastation and death. Of course, the picture of this place was not always this grim. Egypt was once a great world power, a country of culture and wealth and wonder. What brought such a dynasty down to dust? We see four things in this picture that explains what brought about this devastation and death. First, we see a stubborn pharaoh approached by a stuttering prophet and his brother, and they had a startling proposal. Exodus 5, verses 1 and 2. Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh is not only ignorant about God's identity, he is resistant to God's authority. But this should have been no surprise to Moses and Aaron, for God had told Moses in Exodus chapter 4, verses 21-23, through When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn, and I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. While Pharaoh sees the Israelites merely as his slave labor force, to God these people are his firstborn son. And while Pharaoh is enjoying having the Israelites serve him, calling him master, God intends for the Israelites to worship him alone, calling him father. There is a clash of wills here, a battle between two powers, but there is never any question regarding who will win this battle. Clearly, Pharaoh does not know who he is dealing with. He thinks he can refuse Yahweh's interfering demand. Pharaoh's arrogant response to God's word begins, continues, and culminates with a defiant no. He will not say yes to God, which is the definition of a hard heart. Repeatedly we read that Pharaoh hardened his heart, but don't even begin to think that Pharaoh's stubbornness and stiffness will thwart God's purposes. In fact, Pharaoh's hard heart is actually a part of God's purpose to make himself known, and it will, in fact, serve to make God's glory more fully known. Both Pharaoh's hardening of his heart and God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart are clear from the beginning when we read that God says to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Exodus 7, verses 3 and 4. Through to the end when we read that the Lord said to Moses, in Exodus 11, 9 and 10, Pharaoh will not listen to you, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. While we wonder how this hardening can be both Pharaoh's free choice and God's sovereign plan, The narrator simply states both as true. We find it hard to understand how God can be sovereign over all things and yet rightly hold people responsible for their choices. But He is, and He does. We are accountable to God, but He is not accountable to us. 
Next, we see a series of plagues. Pharaoh's stubborn refusal to obey God's instruction to let his people go so that they can worship him is met with a series of plagues intended to offer Pharaoh an opportunity for repentance, even as they make God more fully known. Each plague will magnify the greatness of the one true God while also exposing the weakness of the gods of Egypt. These are not random ills that come upon Egypt. Rather, each is a targeted attack on one or more of Egypt's panoply of gods. The plagues assaulted them one by one. They began with this instruction to Moses from God. Exodus 7.15 Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. Pharaoh will be going out to wash. But more than that, Pharaoh will be going out to worship. He will be headed down to bow down to Hapi, the god of the Nile, with every dip he takes in the water. Exodus 7.16-18 And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish of the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. The Nile, which had been full of the blood of murdered Hebrew baby boys, now became blood. This created an instant water and food shortage, a transportation shutdown, a financial disaster, and a spiritual crisis, as the object of their worship became a thing of horror. After the Nile turned to blood, frogs came from everywhere and were eventually piled in huge, stinking heaps. That plague was followed by gnats, or lice, and then flies. All of these plagues were a mess and a nuisance, but it was about to get worse. Next came the plague upon the livestock, which was a huge assault on the economy of Egypt, as wealth was measured largely in terms of cattle. Then came the boils, which were an assault on the physician god that the Egyptians thought kept them healthy. Then came hail that was so heavy it could kill, whoever dared to step outside in it. The hailstorm destroyed the flax and barley crops, and the next plague, the locusts, destroyed the wheat and spelt crops. This was total devastation, an ecological, environmental, and economic disaster. And then the scene went dark, really dark, three days of heavy darkness, which was clearly an assault on the power of the sun god Ra of whom Pharaoh was a representation. But the final plague would be the worst. It would find its way into Pharaoh's home and Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh's future. Exodus 11, 4-6 So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has been, nor ever will be again. Pharaoh had been exploiting the Lord's firstborn, Israel, and now justice would demand the firstborn of Egypt. Pharaoh had heard God's clear word again and again and refused it. Thinking of himself as a god, he refused to bow before the one true God. But this plague would bring him to his knees. This awful death sentence on the firstborn came only after nine other lesser plagues had been warned about, and then brought about, because of Pharaoh's refusal to obey God. God never judges without warning. But when unbelieving people refuse to listen to his warnings, he does come in judgment. We've seen in this picture so far a stubborn Pharaoh and a series of plagues. The third thing we see is a self-defined person. God shows us who he is in this scene in a way that some of us might not approve of. Many people are comfortable with a kindly grandfather God who would never do anyone any harm. But they have no room for a God who would use his power to bring terror on those who refuse to obey him. Many people want to slam the photo album shut in regard to this picture of who God is. A God of vengeance who demands that blood be shed for sin seems primitive. 
They are embarrassed by the judgment of God and so turn judgment into an impersonal force. But it is clear from this text and in fact from the entire Bible that God is not embarrassed by this intensely personal picture of his acts of judgment. He is clear that he is the one coming to strike down the firstborn of Egypt. Listen to the personal pronouns from Exodus 12, 12. For I will pass through the land that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment, I am the Lord. If you want a God who would never hurt a fly, that will have to be a God you manufacture in your own imagination. That is not the God of the Bible. God will not allow you to define him on your preferred terms. The God of the Bible is dangerous. He is not capricious or impulsive about expressing his anger. In fact, it is obvious from this story that he is slow to anger. But there is always an end to God's patience. Even now we know that God is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 But we can be sure that his patience with those who continue to reject him will come to an end, just as his patience with Pharaoh came to an end. Finally, in this first picture, we see a scriptural pattern. This picture shows us a preliminary temporary judgment day that gives us a glimpse of the devastation and death of the great judgment day to come. It reveals a scriptural pattern for God's judgment on all those who refuse to obey Him. But along with certain judgment, we can also see in this scriptural pattern that God saves those who turn to Him, not apart from Him, but actually through His acts of judgment. God saved the Israelites through the judgment He brought down upon Egypt. God's salvation has always been and will always be accomplished through acts of judgment. Adam and Eve were saved through the judgment that came down in the garden by being expelled from the garden. Noah was saved through the judgment that fell on the earth in the form of rain, and Lot and his family were saved through the fire that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. We can trace it throughout Scripture, leading all the way to the most profound act of God's judgment. Through the judgment that it fell on Christ on the cross, God accomplished the greatest salvation of all time, which He makes available to all who will call upon Him. This scriptural pattern of salvation through judgment continues as we look into the future, where we see in Revelation a great day of salvation when there will be no more death. And how will we enter into that day? Through a great act of judgment that will in fact echo the plagues of Egypt visited on those who have refused God's word and persecuted God's people. When Jesus returns, there will be judgment, and there will be salvation through that judgment. A Picture of Doorposts and Deliverance So we've seen one picture, a picture of devastation and deliverance, and now the second picture, which we must also see if we want to know God. This is a picture of a doorpost, or really many doorposts, with blood painted on each one. Now this seems strange. Why would a picture of a doorpost actually be a picture that God Himself would point to if He wanted us to know Him? Actually, there is no way we can know Him at all if we do not take in what this doorpost pictures for us. It shows us that while God's judgment brings devastation and death, God offers a way to escape that judgment. He provides protection and judgment for all who put their faith in His provision of an innocent substitute. God instructed Moses and Aaron in Exodus 12, verses 3-7, Tell all the congregation of Israel on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for their household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count up for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat in. Wait a minute. This doesn't make sense. The greatest power in the universe is coming down to bring death on every home, and the only way to be protected is to kill a weak little lamb? Can this really be? 
The only way this makes sense is to put it in the context of the story of the Lamb that spans the entirety of the Bible, beginning in Genesis with Abel, a keeper of sheep, who brought an offering of the firstborn of his flock to God. We trace this story of the Lamb to that day when Abraham was called to make an offering of his son, who was spared when God provided a lamb to be sacrificed instead. In this case, God provided one lamb as a substitute for one person, Abraham's son Isaac. Here in Exodus, we see that God made provision for one lamb to be sacrificed for one household. Later, we'll read of God's instructions for the Day of Atonement, in which one lamb will be sacrificed for the sins of the whole nation of Israel. But all these lambs were just preparing God's people to recognize God's provision in Mary's little lamb, Jesus. Finally, the day came when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. Jesus was God's provision of one lamb to die, not for one person or one family or one nation, but for one world. Throughout the entire Bible, we have it pictured for us again and again that anyone who wants to be made right with God can only do so on the basis of the lamb that God has provided. As we look closer at this second picture of doorposts and deliverance, we see that this judgment was, first, an impartial sentence. When God told Moses and Aaron that the destroyer was going to strike down the firstborn, this judgment would fall on both the Egyptians and the Israelites. No favoritism would be shown to the Hebrews. If they persisted in unbelief and refused to kill the lamb and spread the blood on the doorpost, they too would perish. Likewise, this way of escape was open to the Egyptians who had put their faith in the blood of the lamb, and certainly some did. We know that there were Egyptians who later left Egypt with the Israelites, having put their faith in the one true God, rejecting the gods of Egypt. Exodus 9.20 This salvation was by grace through faith expressed by brushing the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost. Second, we must see that what was required was a perfect sacrifice. The Lamb slaughtered in the homes of the Israelites was to be without blemish. Here it begins to become clear to us what is happening. God is using the sacrifice of lambs in Egypt to prepare His people to recognize the perfect sacrifice He will one day provide in His own Son. When Jesus, who had never sinned, offered Himself as a sacrifice, they will be more likely to recognize Him as the Lamb God has provided, because this picture of a perfect sacrifice will have been impressed upon them year after year in the selection and slaying of the Passover Lamb. Third, we see a precise substitution. The Israelites were instructed in Exodus 12, verses 3 and 4, Every man should take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your account for the lamb. There had to be a precise equivalency in each home to the number of people in the household. There was a substitution taking place and a correspondence between the number and needs of the people and the lamb provided was required. Imagine what it was like in Hebrew homes on this night as the truth of substitution began to sink in. God's instructions were that the Hebrews had to take a lamb into their home. Then, four days later, as the sun was beginning to set, Dad had to take the innocent little lamb, which everyone in the house had become so fond of, and slit its throat. Perhaps there are many little boys in Hebrew houses who had become attached to the lamb and asked, Dad, do we really have to kill the lamb? He has done nothing to deserve this. To which the father replied, Son, Either the lamb dies, or you die. But in other homes, the scene played out quite differently. In other homes in Egypt, firstborn sons asked, Have we killed the lamb and put the blood on the doorframe, Dad? And the dad perhaps said something like, Oh, I don't believe in that stuff. It doesn't make any sense. Maybe we'll do that sometime, but not tonight. But Dad, everything else Moses has warned would happen has happened, just like he said. Please, Dad, let's kill the lamb and eat it and brush the blood on the doorpost right now. 
Because we have the benefit of hindsight, we think that certainly we would have taken Moses' words to heart and killed the lamb. Perhaps that is only because we have the whole Bible to put this story of the lamb into context. We have to admit, apart from the rest of the Bible's story that shows us a picture again and again of a lamb being sacrificed in our place, we would find it difficult to believe that blood brushed on a doorpost would have any saving power. Similarly, Many people today find it difficult to believe that blood shed on a cross 2,000 years ago has any saving power for them. This only makes sense if we understand substitution. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is a substitution that saves us. Either the lamb dies or we die. The lamb has died, God's very own firstborn son, in our place, so that we need not die. Fourth, we must see our source of protection. Exodus 12, 21-23 Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your homes to strike you. What will be the difference between the homes where the firstborn dies and the homes in which everyone survives the night? 12.23 When he sees the blood, the Lord will pass over. The salvation God provides is by grace through faith. The Israelites killing a lamb and sprinkling of the blood was an act of faith. The blood on the lintel and the two doorposts is proof that they are taking God at his word about the judgment to come and the protection he will provide in the death of the Lamb. And it is the same for us. If we take God at his word, that judgment is coming. The proof is that the blood of the Lamb has become our covering, our hiding place. Our lives are marked by that blood. So many people have ideas about what it means to be a Christian. Many people think a Christian is someone who believes in God and tries to be good, or someone who lives by the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount, as if anyone could. My friend, a Christian is a person who recognizes that he or she is a sinner, deserving nothing less than the terrifying judgment of God, and takes refuge in nothing other than the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. If this is you, you have no need to fear the day when we will all stand before God. You can know that you will be protected on that day from the judgment you deserve, not because God will go soft and overlook your very real guilt, but because God will look at you and see that the blood has been applied. The blood of the Lamb will be your source of protection when judgment falls. Finally, we must see the sacrament provided. From the time of Moses up to the time of Jesus and beyond, the Israelites celebrated the Passover each spring. People from all over the country would go to Jerusalem to sacrifice a lamb for the Passover feast. The day Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem was the day the herds of Passover lambs were being driven into the city to be sacrificed. Later that week, Jesus told his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Matthew 26, 2. Ever since John the Baptist identified Jesus as the Lamb of God, all of Jesus' ministry had been driving toward this day, this celebration of Passover, when Christ, our Passover Lamb, would be sacrificed for us. Luke tells us in Luke 24, verses 14 and 15, When the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles were with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. They expected him to pick up the bread and say the familiar words of the Passover feast. This is the bread of affliction that our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. But instead, in Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, 
He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. In the Last Supper, Jesus endowed the feast of the Passover with new meaning. Instead of celebrating the redemption of Israel from Egypt, it became clear that these elements now symbolize redemption from the slavery of sin provided by His death as the Lamb of God. His death was a central event toward which all of history has been moving and from which it has meaning. There they are, two pictures that we must see if we truly want to know God. And at the cross of Christ, the picture of devastation and death and the picture of a doorpost and deliverance merged into one, a singular picture of grace and mercy. At the cross, the judgment of God came down in full force against God's firstborn Son. The blood was spilled by our perfect substitute, providing protection for all who will come under it. So gaze into the wonder of this picture, knowing that if you want to really know God, this indeed is a picture you must see. John seventeen three, And this is eternal life, that they know you are the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Throughout this study, we are seeking to grasp how the passage we're studying fits into the bigger picture of God's plan for redemption. Apart from Christ, the Passover sacrifice and covering of blood simply wouldn't make any sense. And apart from the story of the lamb sacrificed for Passover, the death of the lamb of God as our substitute wouldn't really make any sense. So, OOBTers, let's think for a moment, how do we see God's sovereign control of history in the detail of these two events? I hope you take some time to consider that because it is oh so valuable and truly crucial for our understanding of what is to come. Please join with me now in prayer. Father God, thank you for these ten stories, ten plagues. May we be instructed by them. May we be ever grateful for your rescue of the Israelites and also your rescue of each one of us. Today, in our studies of Passover, we are reminded that our freedom was bought at a cost. A life had to be taken and you gave yours for all of us who put our faith in you. We're also reminded that the blood you shed on the cross has permanently covered each one of us once and for all. Thank you, Jesus. And if any of us listening have not yet made the choice to accept Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf, we ask them to pray along with us this prayer. Dear God, I come before you today with a humble heart and surrender my life to you. I believe that Jesus Christ was born free of sin, died on the cross as a payment for my own sin, and rose three days later. I believe in your gift of salvation and eternal life because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God, today I repent and turn from my old way of life. Today I ask for new life through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, for forgiving me and making me brand new. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, that's so good. Okay, my OOB tears, I'm just going to come right out and say it again. You are all simply the best about sharing about this podcast. Thank you so very much for helping others find us to then study along with us. Here's a recommendation when inviting your friends to join in. Have them start in the beginning. I mean in the book of Genesis episodes, as opposed to just jumping into where we are right now. That's the whole point of doing this chronologically, so we can follow the whole storyline of the Bible to not only see the character of God, plus Jesus is found throughout it all, but also the big picture story happening across the 66 books grouped together under one cover. The plot is important. And while you are directing them back to Genesis, be sure to encourage them to go ahead and listen to the two prep episodes, one and two, covering why I ventured into hosting a Bible study podcast in the first place, plus how I study the Bible. Super helpful. Oh, and thanks in advance. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends. My friends.